Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 146, no other answer but from the mouth of his cannon. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, co-host Nikki and I are taking a vacation to Quebec City. In fact, by the time you hear this, we should be on our way home. In honor of the trip, I'm going to share a story about Quebec and Boston. Our cities share a deeply intertwined history that goes back to the earliest days of English settlement in North America. Puritan Boston could hardly stand the idea that their closest European neighbor was a Catholic colony, and they made many attempts to drive the hated French from the continent. To defeat the hated French, the New Englanders would have to take fortresses at Louisbourg, Quebec, and Montreal. We recently talked about the 1745 siege of Louisbourg, but this week, we're going even further back in time. In 1690, Sir William Phipps, the frontier shepherd who found a sunken treasure and became a knight, led a large fleet of ships and over 2,000 soldiers out of Boston. Their goal was to reduce the defenses of Quebec and force the French colonists to submit to the British crown. But the result was a disaster. But before we talk about the 1690 Siege of Quebec, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Thomas Prince's Chronological History of New England. I'm going to be talking about a story from 17th century Massachusetts today, so I want to share one of my go-to sources for the earliest days of English colonization in New England. Prince was a Harvard-educated minister who was born in 1687. After graduating, but before becoming a pastor at Old South, Prince traveled around the Caribbean and visited England. As a New Englander, people in other places grilled him about our region's history, so Prince began collecting books and texts about the topic. A few years later, in 1728, he began assembling his own book about the history of Massachusetts. Unlike many of his contemporaries, Prince was obsessed with primary sources and accuracy. The result is a book that traces the early history of Plymouth and Boston on an almost day-by-day basis. The first few entries for the year 1630 record everything from the official renaming of Trimontane to Boston, to the founding of the cemetery that would become King's Chapel Burying Ground, to Governor Winthrop sending for Thomas Morton of the nearby settlement of Marymount to account for his people's Bacchanalian lifestyle. By the time Thomas Prince died in 1758, he had only made it up to the history of 1633, in part because of his rigor, and in part because he insisted on starting on the sixth day of creation, when God was supposed to have created Adam and Eve. If you're looking for documentation about the English colonists and their native neighbors in Massachusetts between 1620 and 1633, this is an excellent source. I'll include a link to buy the book in this week's show notes, and because it's just ever so slightly out of copyright, We'll also have a link to a free online edition. And for our upcoming event this week, I want to recommend a reenactment that's coming up in Lexington on August 31st. After the Stamp Act of 1765, and especially after the Townsend Acts of 1767 and 1768, Massachusetts colonists found ways to protest what they saw as unjust taxation. These protests would eventually escalate to riots in 1768 and result in the British troops occupying the town. One of the main ways that colonists could affect the Parliament in faraway Britain was through boycotts. Boston merchants entered into a non-importation agreement in 1768, banding together to refuse to purchase British goods that would be taxable. Eventually, these non-importation agreements spread to New York, Philadelphia, and beyond. 
Textiles were one of the key goods that colonists were boycotting. During the protests, American patriots took pride in wearing clothes made of rougher homespun cloth, which was manufactured locally, rather than the more refined materials imported from Britain. Because spinning, weaving, and sewing were gendered as women's work, this homespun movement thrust Massachusetts women to the forefront of resistance against the Townsend Acts. For example, a May 1769 article in the Essex Gazette said, It was early conceived by the most sagacious and knowing nations that a number of females had always determined the condition of men by means of their spinning wheels. And Virgil intimates that the Golden Age advanced faster as they spun. And had the ladies in every age since ruled in this laudable way, perhaps some nations would be in a far better state than they now are. But be that as it will, I presume there never was a time when, or a place where, the spinning wheel could more influence the affairs of men than at present, in this and the neighboring colonies. The industry and frugality of American ladies must exalt their characters in the eyes of the world, and serve to show how greatly they are contributing to bring about the political salvation of a whole continent. While the domestic work of spinning yarn, weaving cloth, and sewing clothing was generally done privately, in 1769, the women of Massachusetts found ways to make it public. Spinning bees were held across the province, with one historian counting 28 during the first nine months of the year. The Boston Gazette reported on a spinning bee held on August 31st in Lexington. Lexington, August 31st, 1769. Very early in the morning, the young ladies of this town, to the number of 45, assembled at the house of Mr. Daniel Harrington with their spinning wheels, where they spent the day in the most pleasing satisfaction, and at night presented Mrs. Harrington with the spinning of 602 knots of linen and 546 knots of cotton. If any should be inclined to treat such assemblings or the publication of them with a contemptuous sneer, as thinking of them as quite ludicrous, such persons would do well first to consider what would become of one of our so much boasted manufactures, on which we pretend the welfare of our country is so much depending, if those of the fair sex should refuse to lay their hands on the spindle or be unwilling to hold the distaff. On August 31st, the Lexington Historical Society will mark the 250th anniversary of this patriotic protest by the women of Lexington. Here's how they describe the event. On the exact 250th anniversary of the 1769 spinning protest in Lexington, come to a reenactment of that important event in its original location. There will be spinners in period dress, interpreters sharing information about the craft of spinning, the political climate of the time, and the British goods boycott that sparked the 1769 spinning bee. August 31st will be a Saturday, and the event will be held on Harrington Road, across the street from Battle Green, from noon to 4 p.m. It's free and open to the public. Before I move on with the show, I want to say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. While we enjoy researching and recording a new show each week, it does come with costs. We pay for web hosting, podcast feed hosting, security, and some online audio tools. The folks who support Hub History on Patreon help us offset the costs of creating the show, and they're allowing us to work towards some future improvements as well. If you'd like to join them in supporting the show, check out patreon.com slash hubhistory or go to hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. For as little as $2 a month, you can help us make Hub History. And now it's time for this week's main topic. When we last talked about William Phipps in episode 123, he'd just been dubbed Sir William by King James II. 
That in itself was quite surprising, given Phipps's humble roots. He was born on the main frontier, the 21st of 26 children, and he spent his early days as a shepherd. At 18, he entered into a contract as an apprentice to a ship's carpenter. When his four years as an apprentice were finished, William Phipps moved to Boston and opened his own shipbuilding business. Before he became Sir William, he was Captain William Phipps, piloting ships of his own design on trading voyages back and forth between the main coast and Boston, and between Boston and the Caribbean. In every port, he heard rumors of lost treasures, sunken Spanish galleons stuffed to the gills with gold and precious stones. He became obsessed with these rumors, leading three treasure-hunting expeditions to the Bahamas and eventually finding a fortune in Spanish silver. Now a rich man, Sir William Phipps returned to Boston for the first time in over four years. Along with his title, the king had granted Sir William the position of Provost Marshal General, which put him in charge of the sheriffs in the province. This is about where we left off in episode 123, and that's where we'll pick up the narrative this time. Samuel Sewell's diary records Sir William's arrival back in Boston in June of 1688, and in July he reports on special sermons honoring Sir William. Also in July, there's a record of him taking the oath of office for his role as Provost Marshal, or High Sheriff, as Samuel Sewell put it. Between these entries celebrating William Phipps, Sewell's diary captures the great controversy that was rocking Boston at that time. Sir Edmund Andros was appointed as the governor of the Dominion of New England when King Charles II revoked the charter of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He was enormously unpopular in Boston, and one of the key reasons was his Anglican faith. He insisted that he should be allowed to use one of the town's Puritan meeting houses for his worship services, but they all refused him. He eventually demanded the key to Third Church, today's Old South, against the minister's will. In June and July of 1688, Sewell rails against the governor and his Anglican services in his diary, revealing a Boston where their new night was celebrated, while the governor, their old knight, was reviled. Phipps was now one of the most wealthy men in Boston, and with his new job, he was in a position to earn a tidy income without actually having to do much. Instead of sitting on his laurels, though, he jumped into the ongoing political fray. After spending only six weeks in Boston, he departed for London, where he met up with Increase Mather, and the two men pressed the king and parliament to get rid of Andros and restore the colony's charter. Later that year, the Glorious Revolution replaced Catholic King James I with Protestant William and Mary, who were much more friendly to Puritanism than their predecessor had been. While Increase Mather stayed in London to lobby for a new charter, Phipps sailed back to Boston carrying news of the Glorious Revolution and a proclamation by the new monarchs. He arrived in May of 1689 in the midst of a major upheaval. The previous month, the people of Boston had learned of the revolution in New England, and the militia marched into Boston and arrested Governor Andros. We covered the 1689 Boston Revolt back in Episode 6, but it is a topic we should revisit sometime in more detail. The bottom line is that when Phipps got home, the governor was imprisoned at Castle William, and former Governor Simon Bradstreet was governing under the rules of the old vacated charter. In the chaos that reigned, the wealthy and influential Phipps aligned himself closely with the powerful Mather family. No formal government would be established until Increase Mather finally convinced William and Mary to issue a new charter in 1692. In the meantime, the colony's neighbors to the north in New France took advantage of the disarray to launch a series of raids across the frontier, 
burning towns and taking captives in an escalation of King William's War, which had been simmering even during the Andros administration. Throughout 1688 and 1689, the French and Wabanaki had been pushing the English colonists inexorably out of Maine. First, they took today's Bristol, and then Portland, and then on March 19, 1690, Samuel Sewell records an attack on another town in Maine. The news came indistinctly in the afternoon of the surprisal of Salmon Falls. The doleful news came that between 80 and 100 persons were killed and carried away, were taken by surprise about break of day. Salmon Falls is today's Berwick, Maine, which sits on the state line with New Hampshire today. With this victory, the Wabanaki had effectively pushed the English colonists out of Maine entirely. The New Englanders immediately launched a few retaliatory raids, but they didn't believe that the Wabanaki Confederacy was at the root of their troubles. In his Life of William Phipps, Cotton Mather places the blame for all the Bay Colony's difficulties squarely at the feet of the French in Canada. It was Canada that was the chief source of New England's miseries. There was the main strength of the French. There, the Indians were mostly supplied with ammunition. Vince issued parties of men who, uniting with the savages, barbarously murdered many innocent New Englanders without any provocation on the New English part. The English believed that their best bet at reprisal was to strike at the heart of New France. The largest settlements in the colony were Montreal, Quebec, and Port Royal. A campaign was planned against Port Royal, the principal French settlement in Acadia, which the English had long coveted. There was only one problem. Who could lead it? Although he didn't have military experience, having plied his trade as a shipbuilder while others fought in King Philip's War, Sir William was seen as a promising candidate. He had commanded one of the king's ships of war, and his experience organizing and leading the successful treasure cruises were seen as an important credential. There was just one more problem. As a non-Puritan, Sir William was not a freeman, not a free member of Massachusetts society. Luckily, that was a problem that the province could solve. Samuel Sewell's diary records Phipps' commission as an officer and his oath as a freeman. Saturday, March 22nd. The governor sends for me and tells me of it. I tell the court and they send for Sir William, who accepts to go and is appointed to command the forces. Major Townsend relinquishes with thanks. Sir William had been sent to at first, but some feared he would not go. Others thought his lady would not consent. Court makes Sir William free and swear him Major General and several others. The Wikipedia entry for Sir William does a better job interpreting this paragraph than I would have. It says that the diary shows that Phipps, though knighted and one of the richest men in the colony and highly active on the colony's behalf, was not yet able to vote or serve under the provisional government, as they were following the old charter, wherein only church members were free. The court, not the church, made Phipps free on this Saturday, according to Sewell. Sewell was religiously devout and active in his church congregation and would not likely have misspoken or deliberately withheld information on this point. In Cotton Mather's Life of William Phipps, he claims that this civil conversion was followed the next day by an authentic spiritual conversion. He says that on March 23rd, Phipps came to his church, offering himself first unto the baptism and then unto the supper of the Lord. He presented unto the pastor of the church with his own handwriting the following instrument. I will here faithfully transcribe it without adding so much as one word unto it. 
there follows a long testimonial offering complicated scriptural affirmations of Puritan theology. The idea that our former shepherd and treasure hunter wrote it spontaneously strains credulity. It concludes in part, I can do little for God, but I desire to wait upon him and his ordinances and to live to his honor and glory. My being born in a part of the country where I had not in my infancy enjoyed the first sacrament of the New Testament has been something of a stumbling block unto me. But though I have had proffers of baptism elsewhere made unto me, I resolved rather to defer it until I might enjoy it in the communion of these churches. That I may make sure of better things, I now offer myself under the communion of this church of the Lord Jesus. There are a few possible explanations for this story. One is that Cotton Mather entirely invented it. As we saw in our episode about his execution sermons for pirates, Mather wasn't above inventing a conversation with the condemned if it served his theological purposes. So maybe he would invent a conversation with the converted as well. Maybe Phipps really had a genuine conversion experience on the very day he was also made a freeman by the court. Perhaps, though, the most likely possible explanation is that someone else wrote Sir William's testimony for him, he signed his name to it, and Cotton Mather rubber-stamped it, putting a clerical seal of approval on the civil conversion that was already complete. No matter how it happened, Cotton Mather concluded, Accordingly, on March 23, 1690, after he had, in the congregation of North Boston, given himself up first unto the Lord and then unto his people, he was baptized, and so received into the communion of the faithful. This politically convenient conversion swept away the barrier standing in the way of Sir William's command, and he led a small fleet out of Boston Harbor on April 23, 1690. He commanded seven ships with about 700 men in total, of whom about 450 were militia members who would form his infantry. They worked their way up the main coast, arriving at Port Royal on May 9th. On the other side, the French commander had a garrison of about 70 men, a fort that was not yet fully constructed, and no cannons mounted. The officers negotiated for two days, and then the French surrendered the fort. Under the terms of the surrender, the French garrison was taken prisoner, and all the goods belonging to the French crown were to be turned over to the English. A journal of the expedition attributed to Phipps records what happened after the French allegedly removed some of the government property that was supposed to be surrendered. Monday, May 12th. This morning, we went ashore to search for hidden goods. For during the time of the parley, they had broke open the king's store and merchant stores and conveyed sundry wares into the woods. We cut down the cross, rifled the church, pulled down the high altar, breaking their images, and brought our plunder, arms, and ammunition into Mr. Nelson's storehouse, and so kept gathering plunder both by land and water and also underground in their gardens all the next day. This decision made him a villain in the history books of Canada because he'd promised to protect, quote, the lives, liberties, and properties of the French planters as long as they surrendered the fort at Port Royal with all the great artillery and stores of war and whatsoever else belongs to the French king. Instead, when his crew was done plundering the town, they leveled the fort, and Phipps compelled some of the Acadians to swear oaths of allegiance to the British crown. By May 30th, Sir William's fleet was back in Boston, with the French garrison as their prisoners. This success inspired an even more ambitious expedition, one that Cotton Mather called the greatest action that ever New England attempted. The town of Quebec was the capital of New France, 
It was situated far inland on the St. Lawrence, an incredibly powerful river that carries the drainage of the entire Great Lakes Basin to the sea. The town was built at the top and bottom of an imposing bluff high over the river, at the first point where the river's narrow enough for cannons on one side to command the whole thing. It was fortified on both the land and water sides, though the French garrison was small. For Sir William, now a newly minted major general to successfully attack the fort, he'd need to recruit a large force of infantry and artillery, embark them on ships, and sail all the way up the east coast past Maine, past Acadia, to the mouth of the St. Lawrence, and then all the way up the St. Lawrence to the interior. It was going to be an expensive expedition. To finance the undertaking, the colony issued bonds. Like a treasury note today, these bonds essentially allowed the government to borrow from the populace. You'd buy a bond now, and the government would pay you back after the expedition. Instead of paying out interest like our treasury notes, these bonds entitled the buyer to be paid a share of the plunder taken from Quebec in proportion to the value of the bond. Given Phipps' willingness to loot the church at Port Royal, the army was looking forward to good plundering. One of the Articles of War governing the expedition, though, said that all plunder had to be reported so it could be used for the bond fund. It said that whosoever shall at any time seize or take any plunder, of what kind or nature soever from the enemy, shall forthwith give notice thereof to the general, lieutenant general, or chief officer present, with an account thereof that the same may be disposed of and secured according to further order. And whosoever shall refuse or neglect to do so, shall forfeit his share of plunder, and make restitution of what they shall so conceal, withhold, or embezzle, and also suffer such further punishment as a council of war shall determine. Along with money, the expedition also needed supplies, namely cannons. To successfully besiege a fortified town like Quebec, they would need plenty of powder and heavy guns to batter down the walls and make the defense untenable. There weren't enough heavy cannons in Massachusetts at the time, so Phipps ordered more from England, and then waited for a response. And waited. And he waited, until he finally had to give up and sail. Here's what Cotton Mather says on the matter. And a fleet was accordingly fitted out from Boston under the command of Sir William Phipps, to fall upon Quebec, the chief city of Canada. They waited until August for some stores of war from England, whether they had sent for that purpose early in the spring. But none at last arriving, and the season of the year being so far spent, Sir William could not, without many discouragements upon his mind, proceed in a voyage for which he found himself so poorly provided. However, the ships being taken up, and the men on board, his usual courage would not permit him to desist from the enterprise. But he set sail from Hull, near Boston, August 9th, 1690, with a fleet of 32 ships and tenders. Of the 32 ships under Sir William's command, four were ships of the line, proper English warships, and the others made up a motley fleet. Along with their crews, these ships carried a militia of about 2,300 men. They were departing on the long voyage to Quebec late in the summer, without heavy guns or sufficient powder. Nevertheless, certain that the Protestant God was on their side, the Provisional Government of Massachusetts gave Phipps these orders. Pursuant under your said commission, you are to take all the said forces under your conduct and command, and having embarked your soldiers, to take the first opportunity of fair wind and weather and set sail on the said expedition directing your course for Canada. 
Let your care be that your soldiers and seamen be supplied and allowed suitable provisions and other necessaries. You are to take effectual care that your ships and soldiers be provided and fit for service, and to prosecute your commission in making what spoils and destruction you can upon the enemy French and Indians. You are to endeavor what you can to take them by surprise, exposing your own men as little as may be, taking special care in your landing, marches, and assaults, that you be neither ambuscadoed nor betrayed by the enemy. In case they shall surrender themselves and ask for quarter, you are to grant them their lives and nothing else but at discretion only, unless it appear for their majesty's service and you be necessitated to consent to further terms. One of the militia members under Sir William was John Wise, a minister from Ipswich who served as a chaplain. He wrote a narrative of the expedition to Quebec, which he opened by saying, Under the conduct of the truly valiant Sir William Phipps, Knight General, and of John Wally, Esquire, Lieutenant General, about 2,500 soldiers and mariners embarked out of the New England colonies and set sail upon the 9th of August, 1690, from Massachusetts Bay, with great hopes and expectations to conquer New France. Just a note that throughout this episode, we're using dates from our primary sources in the old calendar style, from before the British calendar change of 1752. August 9th, old style, corresponds to August 19th, new style. This podcast is being released on August 18th, which is one day short of 329 years after August 9th, old style, when the fleet left Boston. Whether you measure it by an old style calendar or a new one, eight and a half weeks is a long time to be at sea but that's how long it took the fleet to get from Boston to Quebec. Major Thomas Savage of Boston said in a letter to his brother, We went from Boston 32 ships and other vessels, with about 2,000 men, with four months' provision and ammunition little enough, but had not one man for a pilot. Of their two months aboard ship, three weeks were spent navigating up the treacherous St. Lawrence River against the prevailing wind and without a knowledgeable local pilot to guide them. Along the way, they captured a few French vessels and attacked some small settlements along the river. The fleet finally dropped anchor within sight of Quebec on October 6th, just as the Canadian winds began turning wintry. In the meantime, French Governor Frontenac had been tipped off by their long voyage up the river, and he marched from Montreal with a large reinforcement of colonial regulars and militia, arriving just two days before Sir William did. Now, the small garrison at Quebec had been bolstered to a superior force of 3,000. They were behind walls and atop one of the greatest natural fortifications on the continent, while the shallow waters at the foot of the cliffs meant that the English warships couldn't closely approach the town. Undeterred, Sir William sent Major Savage ashore that very day, carrying a flag of truce and a letter for the governor. Frontenac had the residents and his troops all turn out in the streets, screaming and shouting insults, while the blindfolded Boston Major was led to the Chateau St. Louis, the governor's mansion, giving the impression of a much larger force. Inside the chateau, the governor and his top officers waited in their finest uniforms, again projecting strength. The militia officer then delivered Sir William's demand for an immediate surrender of the French city, quoted here by Cotton Mather. Sir William Phipps, Knight, General and Commander-in-Chief, in and over their Majesty's forces of New England by sea and land. To Count Frontenac, Lieutenant General and Governor for the French King at Canada, or in his absence to his deputy. The war between the two crowns of England and France doth not only sufficiently warrant, 
but the destruction made by the French and Indians under your command and encouragement upon the persons and estates of their majesty's subjects in New England, without provocation on their part, hath put them under the necessity of this expedition, for their own security and satisfaction. And although the cruelties and barbarities used against them by the French and Indians might, upon the present opportunity, prompt unto a severe revenge, yet being desirous to avoid all inhumane and unchristian-like actions, and to prevent shedding of blood as much as may be, I, the aforesaid Sir William Phipps, knight, do hereby, in the name and in the behalf of their most excellent majesties, William and Mary, King and Queen of England, Scotland, and Ireland, defenders of the faith, and by order of their said majesty's government of the Massachusetts colony in New England, demand a present surrender of your forts and castles, undemolished, and the king's and other stores, unembezzled, with a seasonable delivery of all captives, together with a surrender of all your persons and estates to my dispose. Upon the doing whereof, you may expect mercy from me as a Christian, according to what shall be found for their majesty's service and the subject's security. Which, if you refuse forthwith to do, I am come provided and am resolved by the help of God in whom I trust, by force of arms, to revenge all wrongs and injustices offered, and bring you under the subjection to the crown of England, and when too late, make you wish you had accepted the favor tendered. Your answer in an hour is required, upon the peril that will ensue. French-Canadian historian René Chartrand wrote, Up to that point, Phipps and his New Englanders were quite confident that the cowardly and effete French would be no match for their hardy men, and the city was expected to surrender immediately. After delivering Sir William's ultimatum, Savage pulled out his pocket watch to count down the hour. Chartrand continues, That was too much for Frontenac. He was so enraged that he wanted to have the messenger hanged at once in full view of the Massachusetts fleet. The Bishop of Quebec had to intervene to save the Major's life. Instead of the expected surrender, Frontenac delivered a response that's become legendary in Canada, that they should have no other answer but from the mouth of his cannon. Cotton Mather records an expanded version with Frontenac saying that Sir William Phipps and those with him were heretics and traitors to their king, and had taken up with that usurper the Prince of Orange, and had made a revolution which, if it had not been made, New England and the French had been all one and that no other answer was to be expected from him but what should be from the mouth of his cannon. Phipps and his second-in-command, General Wally, decided that the only logical place to stage an attack was at the mouth of the River St. Charles, which formed the northeast boundary of the town. Here there was a break in the imposing cliffs protecting Quebec, and there was level ground they could use for a staging area after landing troops. A plan was concocted by which the infantry would use the fleet's small boats to land on the eastern bank of the St. Charles, away from the town. John Wise describes how it began to unfold. Having considered every place for landing our forces, and having an account that the Charles River, which runs down by Quebec North, was fordable and passable for foot about low water, and seeing all the time we lay there that the French went out of the town and over the river horse and foot and drove cattle, etc., we concluded that to land a little below where the bark went on shore might be very convenient and fit for our purpose. Therefore, as I do remember about the young flood in the forenoon upon the 8th day of October, we fell down with all our small vessels and boats belonging to the ships of war for landing. Major Thomas Savage continues, It was agreed that the soldiers should be put ashore upon a beach about two miles from the town, 
and to get as near the town as we could, and to encamp that night. For there was a river between us and the town that was knee-deep at low water, which we were to go over to the town. And in the night, they were to send some small vessels that had guns with ammunition and provisions for us, and to bring our field pieces ashore with them to secure our passage over the river. And when we were over the river, then the four great ships should fall upon the town to batter it. So, after establishing a beachhead, the New Englanders were supposed to wade across the river at low tide. Then the boats were supposed to come back and deliver six brass field guns, small cannons, once they were on the west side of the river. The plan went wrong right from the start. First of all, the army was under strength, because smallpox and dysentery had set in during the long voyage north. At the time of the landing, only about 1,200 men were fit for duty. I've seen estimates that in order to successfully lay siege to a fortified enemy position, an army needs anywhere from twice to ten times as many soldiers as the opposing side has. Sir William was now landing a party that had less than half the numbers as the defenders in one of the strongest fortresses on the continent had. The narrative by Wise records that the landing party had no time to secure a beachhead and set up camp. When the boats came so near shore as they could get, our men were necessitated to wade, some up to mid-thigh. They had a bad landing, but after some hours, most of our army mounted the bank of the river and drew into good order their several regiments for march. They had not stood so long in their figure, but the French enemy, having placed an ambuscado of about 700 men in the swamp toward our right wing, made shot on our army. Major Thomas Savage was in command of the landing party, and his letter also captures the chaos that followed the landing. Accordingly, we landed, I being the first field officer ashore. We landed about 1,200 men, and as soon as we came ashore, at the side of the beach was a swamp, where lay an ambuscade of about 600 French, who galled us at our landing. But our men, running very briskly on them, beat up their ambuscade, and followed them a great way. All our men in their landing waited some up to their middle, none less than to their knees. By the time that we had rallied, the sun was near set, so we marched about half a mile from the river, and so encamped. Our men had spent the greatest part of our ammunition in the skirmish, having taken ashore with them about three-quarters of a pound of powder a man, and about fifteen or eighteen shot, and but two biscuits a man, and the reason why they carried no more was because the small vessels were to carry it into the river that night. We had in this skirmish about five men killed outright and about 20 men wounded. Savage and the Massachusetts men didn't know it, but Frontenac was holding his best men, the colonial regulars, in reserve inside the city walls. Only the Canadian militia had engaged the landing party as they floundered through the woods and swamps along the River St. Charles. Now they were tired, wet, cold, out of food, and nearly out of ammunition, as the sun set on the first day. As planned, the small boats came back under cover of darkness carrying the six small field guns. Unfortunately, they delivered the cannons to the wrong side of the St. Charles, and they didn't bring badly needed food or gunpowder. Savage continues, About midnight they sent us ashore six field pieces, about 800 pounds apiece, which we could not tell what to do with it being a marshy place and several small gullies to go over. We sent aboard for ammunition and provision, but they sent us half a barrel of powder, which, what that was, you may judge, amongst near 1,200 men, and sent no provision. 
Since Phipps hadn't gotten any heavy guns from England, the expedition's best artillery consisted of the guns of the ships of the line. Far from turning the tide of battle, though, Savage says, We were no sooner engaged at our coming ashore, but contrary to orders, those four ships of war, as they called them, weighed their anchors and fell to battering the town. And there spent the greatest part of their ammunition by the time that they got back. The naval guns could not fire high enough or far enough to reach the batteries on top of Quebec's protective cliffs, while the French guns could hit any point on the river. The warships were badly damaged, and Sir William's personal ensign on its flagship was shot away and captured as a trophy by some Canadian militia in a canoe. While the fleet was off wasting its gunpowder, the landing party made an attempt to break through the defenses and reach the city. Chartrand writes, After a couple of miserable days, the New Englanders on shore decided to attack. The plan was to cross the St. Charles River, carry the shore positions, overcome the earthworks, and break into the city. They set out in the best European tradition, with drums beating and colors unfurled. At the edges of the woods, plenty of Canadian militiamen were waiting for them. The New England militiamen could not cope with their heavy fire, wavered, and fell back. Brass field guns were brought up and fired into the woods, but to no effect. At length, unable to advance further, the New Englanders retreated back to their camp. The Canadians and Indians maintained the pressure thereafter by skirmishing closer and closer to their camp. By the time they got back to the landing party, the ships were almost out of powder and virtually useless. Thomas Savage needed food and ammunition, writing, "'Sending aboard often to sea to get some victuals, for we could meet with little ashore, the enemy having drove their cattle into the woods. They at length sent us word that they had no more ammunition to spare, but sent us out a biscuit cake a man, and ordered that we should come aboard again, for they understood it was not a good place to set upon the town, being a very strong place, walled all round, and a battery of guns that are coming over the river.' On October 12th, the boats came to ferry the landing party back to the ships. By this time, they'd lost somewhere between 30 and 150 men killed and captured. In the confusion of loading the boats, five of the six field cannons were left behind and captured by the Canadians. Cotton Mather described this evacuation from Phipps' point of view. But wondering that he saw no signal of any effective action ashore at the east end of the city, he sent that he might know the condition of the army there and received answer that several of the men were so frozen in their hands and feet as to be disabled from service, and others were a pace falling sick of the smallpox. Whereupon he ordered them on board immediately to refresh themselves, and he intended then to have renewed his attack upon the city, and the method of landing his men in the face of it under the shelter of his great guns. I'm not quite sure how Sir William intended to renew the attack, since his heavy guns couldn't reach the French positions, his light guns had been captured, he was out of food and ammunition, his army was increasingly sick and dispirited, and a harsh Canadian winter was fast approaching. Mother Nature soon put an end to his lofty plans. Cotton Mather says that, Ere a full council of war could conclude the next steps to be taken, a violent storm arose that separated the fleet, and the snow and cold became so extreme that they could not continue in those quarters any longer. Thomas Savage wrote that the fleet briefly anchored in the lee of Isle Orleans, a large island just downstream from Quebec, but were, by stress of weather, forced out of the river to sea and dispersed. Rather than reckoning with Sir William's poor planning and leadership, 
Cotton Mather decided that the expedition's failure was part of a divine plan. Thus, by an evident hand of heaven, sending one unavoidable disaster after another, as well formed an enterprise as perhaps was ever made by the New Englanders, most unhappily miscarried. And General Phipps underwent a very mortifying disappointment of a design, which his mind was as much as ever any set upon. Perhaps Mather was right, and the Puritan god miraculously delivered Catholic Quebec from destruction. Or perhaps it was a poorly planned campaign against an incredibly strong position. Either way, 1690 was neither the first nor the last time that the French, English, and Americans fought over Quebec. The first had occurred when the French settlement at Quebec had been around for 20 years, but Boston didn't exist yet. In 1629, an English privateer fleet starved Quebec into submission, forcing Samuel de Champlain to surrender the settlement. However, because the war between France and England was officially over before that siege began, the colony was returned to France in 1632. Then, a few years after Sir William's campaign, another fleet from Boston sailed for Quebec as part of Queen Anne's War in 1711. This time, a large portion of the fleet was lost to shipwrecks at the mouth of the St. Lawrence. At least 700 soldiers drowned, and the invasion was called off. At the height of the Seven Years' War, which we know better as the French and Indian War, a British invasion force finally went to Quebec with enough men and materiel to take it. A large army of British regulars led by General James Wolfe laid siege to the city for three months, reducing the French fighting effectiveness and probing for weaknesses. In September of 1759, the British landed, climbed the cliffs in secret, and lured the French into a set-piece battle in the Plains of Abraham. It was over within 15 minutes, sealing the fate of New France. And finally, as Hamilton fans know, General Richard Montgomery caught a bullet in the neck of Quebec in 1775. American General Benedict Arnold launched an audacious invasion of Canada by sailing from Cambridge to the Kennebec River then marching his army 300 miles through the Maine wilderness to Quebec. By the time they arrived in November, half the army had deserted and the rest was starving. The Americans launched an attack on December 30th, leading to -to house-to-house fighting before they were pushed back. The siege dragged on until May of 1776, with the Americans suffering from hunger and disease while the British sat fat and happy behind the impregnable walls of Quebec. You can learn more about the 1759 and 1775 sieges of Quebec from our friends over at the American Revolution podcast, who have excellent episodes about both. Back in 1690, Sir William's troubles weren't over. Disease continued decimating the army on the voyage home. Four ships were blown out to sea and fell weeks behind the rest of the fleet. Two ships sank, and another one was wrecked on Anacosti Island at the mouth of the St. Lawrence. They slowly starved through the long winter until a group of five survivors sailed an open boat on a 45-day journey through the icy March waters to Boston. After a rescue party retrieved the rest of the survivors, the final death toll from disease, exposure, starvation, and shipwreck was about a thousand. Samuel Sewell says that the bad news reached Boston on November 8th. Phipps himself arrived in Boston on November 19th in the middle of a financial crisis. Since the siege failed, the bonds that had been issued against shares of plunder were worthless. The surviving soldiers and sailors, however, still expected to get paid. 
The colony didn't really have any hard currency, so a note attached to Thomas Savage's account describes how the government issued the first paper money in North America. This expedition has brought the colony of the Massachusetts Bay above 50,000 pounds in debt. For payment whereof, the general court hath laid grievous taxes upon the inhabitants, which they force from those who refuse to pay. And for satisfying the clamors of the soldiers and sailors, most of whom were pressed and sent in this service, they, upon the return of their ships from Canada, made a law, dated at Boston the 10th of December 1690, ordering a committee of five persons, three whereof should be empowered for granting forth printed bills, by which some of the soldiers and seamen are paid, and the colonies thereby engaged to satisfy the value of the said bills, as the treasury shall be enabled. The first bills were printed the next February, and they carried this inscription. This indented bill of blank shillings, due from the Massachusetts colony to the possessor, shall be in value equal to money, and shall be accordingly accepted by the treasurer and receiver, subordinates to him in all public payments, and for any stock at any time in the treasury. New England, February the 3rd, 1690, by order of the General Court. Unfortunately, these paper notes quickly lost half their value, and merchants soon stopped accepting them. Despite the complete and total failure of this expedition to Quebec, Sir William Phipps remained closely allied with the powerful Mather family. When Increase Mather was finally successful in obtaining a new charter for the colony, he persuaded the king and queen to make Sir William the first royal governor of Massachusetts. He took his oath of office in May of 1692 just in time to preside over the Salem witch trials. But that's another story for another podcast. To learn more about the 1690 Siege of Quebec, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 146. We'll have an article about archaeologists uncovering a ship from Dorchester that was part of the Phipps fleet in 1997. There will be plenty of historic maps showing how the siege unfolded. We'll have links to Cotton Mather's Magnalia Christi Americana and Life of William Phipps, and to Samuel Sewell's diary. And we'll link to the first-hand accounts of the siege by Thomas Savage and John Wise. We'll also include a collection of sources in both French and English. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and this week's Boston Book Club pick. Before I wrap up, I want to take a moment to share some listener feedback, since it's been a while. The first thing I want to share is not a direct response to the show, but it's a response to a social media post about the deadly 1973 crash of Delta Flight 723 at Logan Airport. A follower shared that her grandparents died in the crash. She'd like to connect with others who might have lost somebody in the crash as well. If that's you, email jake at hubhistory.com and I'll connect you. Dan, who asked the question about secret tunnels in the North End that inspired episode 143, listened to the show and said, Wow, great podcast. I was surprised that my question resulted in such a well-researched historical expose on the legendary tunnels. Very happy that you decided to delve into the subject. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to what you had discovered. Thanks for answering my question a second time around and on a whole new level. William Ricker heard the same episode and took issue with my statement that there was no need for smugglers anymore after the revolution. I somehow doubt that incentive to dodge tariff-takers completely vanished with independence. Both Commonwealth and Congress were likely to take a tax when convenient. Captains of Old Jersey and settlers of Gloucester were known to smuggle. 
Or was that marblehead that was supposedly built by those captains who found even Salem too close to Boston's custom house? Over on Twitter, at Ritterton saw a tweet about our Hooker Day show and said, Oh, really? He got a day? Was it filled with drinking and blaming immigrants for his problems? Asking for my ancestors. At Boston Boxer One heard our classic episode about the 1779 Penobscot expedition that got Paul Revere court-martialed and said, A great follow-up to the podcast would be to read Bernard Cornwell's The Fort. Fascinating and frustrating story. We'll be sure to listen to this one. At Knock Knock Zebra listened to our show about the Cessna Strafer and said, I was around for this. I remember the shooting, but forgot that he'd flown under the Tobin. Holy crap. I also want to share one of my favorite recent reviews on Apple Podcasts. Like milk and a cookie and a shot of rum. For some reason, I just feel better after listening to these podcasts. I don't care if it's tidal mill ponds or pirates. It's like hearing stories from your cool but approachable friends. I love being described as being like milk and a cookie and a shot of rum, but the author didn't email me their address, so I couldn't send them a Hub History sticker. Remember, claim your review if you want a sticker. We love getting your feedback, whether you loved the episode or just liked it a lot. We're happy to hear your episode suggestions, factual corrections, and alternate sources that we missed. If you'd like to leave us some feedback on this show or any other, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We also have a voicemail line at 617-383-9255, where you can call and leave us a message. We'd love to share your audio feedback in a future episode. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or just go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating and reviewing the show. Or just tell a friend about us. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about the only female pirate from Boston who was also the last woman to be hanged in Massachusetts. (laughs) ¶¶